Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the VSUIT podcast, the audio-only show that doesn't need to spend billions of dollars to change the temperature. We're on another solo show this time, so sit back and relax, of course, unless you're listening to this in the car, in which case concentrate on the road while we fill your mind with some virtualization awesomeness. So guys, what's been going on? Mm, not much here. No, it's, it's a funny time of year, isn't it? I mean, there's no sort of big major sort of changes in the industry. Uh, vendors are just gearing up. I mean, um, we're gearing up for our sort of sales kickoff. So everyone's kind of holding back because they don't know what the, the latest and greatest thing, you know, it's that time of year where product strategy gets announced internally. Um, and I'm sure that, we're, you know, we're not alone in that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, you're finding out what you're going to do to make blow the market away and do all sorts of uh, funky and clever things within the next 12 months. Um, so no one's re- releasing anything now unless they've had their, their sort of kickoffs and you know, that sort of thing early. Um, so on the new product side, it, it seems to be pretty quiet. Yeah, but at the, sa- at the same time, new budgets are open for customers, so it's kind of busy as well, at least for me as a consultant. Uh, kind of, okay, it's a new year, we have some new money to spend, we need to do something. <laughs> oh, okay, is, so yeah, is that do you reckon that's a regional thing? I mean, in uh, Norway, do you think they they like to spend their? It, it seems where I deal with people like to spend their budget at the end of the year, so that you know they work out kind of what they're going to have budgeted, and then they kind of sweat everything till the last possible second, realize they've got some left which they have to spend. Uh, I never quite understood this uh, as a <laughs> being a reason for why things go out of control. If you don't spend X. Uh, you spend, you know, a little bit X minus Y. Um, you you only get that reduced amount the following year, um, and this sort of process of setting budgets based on you absolutely spanking all the money you've got on stupid things. Um, I don't know. It always, I suppose, that's why costs are inevitably always going to go up because of this kind of accounting principle. Although my wife tries to tell me otherwise, but I get confused. Um, <laughs> so, you know that surely there's got to be if. If you set a budget and you you underspend, uh, but you still deliver on what your department's supposed to be delivering, surely that's a good thing, and you should be rewarded with maybe more flexibility in your budget in the future. I, th- I think in, in in many cases you actually end up with getting less the next year because you you actually proved uh, you've proven to everyone that you can do it for less. Yeah, that, that, the that's, that is the thing. I've known some some customers. Not ours, uh, fortunately, that have bought entire storage systems and set them aside until they were outdated just because they needed to spend the money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've certainly seen it. You know, people will buy software that will sit on the shelf that they have no intention of installing um, for the next six months, even, because they need to spend that budget now. And they've got some money and it's burning a hole in their pocket, like, I don't know, like a teenager with his first pay packet. It's like, oh my god, I've got to spend this on what? Oh, hang on, is it your first vendor that uh, picked up the phone to me? Uh, yeah, I'll buy some. How many? Fantastic. Just send it over. Um, you know, obviously vendors love stuff like that because it, it's it, it's money that just comes in. They don't really have to work too hard to get it. Um, but, you know, it can't make good sense. It, it just seems a crazy idea and someone really should be thinking about it. It, it, it is a crazy idea, but it, it's a it's a reality a lot of places, which is even more crazy to be honest. But well, it, it, it's a kind of a both. Uh, it goes kind of both ways here. Um, we budget in Norway from year to year. We don't have a, a a kind of delayed fiscal year or something like that. So 
Janu- January 1st is kind of, okay, that's a new year, that's a new budget. Uh, yep. So I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a bunch of, uh, of customers who were basically holding off on, uh, at the end of last year, spending money on consultants and, and stuff like that, now opening up because they now have room for it in their budgets, which are perhaps things they would have liked to have done uh, by the end in Q4 last year, but then they had already spent their money anyway. So they're kind of trying to catch up on on stuff they didn't do at the end of 2013. Okay, so they're kind of slightly behind. Because yeah. I wonder, you know, we spend a lot of our, our time and energy into building um, a system which is agile and, and flexible, you know, <laughs> uh, that, you know, alert infrastructure. Yet the, these flexible and agile systems then have to fit into rigid accounting systems. Exactly. And, that's and I the- wonder, yeah, when are we going to get, like, account- software-defined accounting? Um, that is that could be flexible. That actually, you know what, you don't need your budget this year. That's fine. You've been really efficient. Um, you've got loads of capacity left in your system um, based on the predicted demand. It's great. But if your demand comes up, then you you need you suddenly going to need a big budget sort of bulge, and you predict that. And if you've got a system which says actually, you know, eight months down the line, yes, I am going to need some budget. Um, that perhaps there's there is scope um, to uh, to try and fit things in that way. Uh, but then again, I'm told that you know finance just doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I said, well, physical infrastructures just you know, or virtualization no, just doesn't work that way. It's it's, it's never going to catch on. So yeah. you know, I wonder is someone going to make such a a similar sort of paradigm shift? I suppose to use the buzzword. I don't know. I I I honestly really don't know because. A lot of, I don't, I don't want to be generalizing too much about people in a way, but in general, people who are accountants or financial people, unless you work for a huge American bank and play around with the world's finances uh, as a whole, uh, you are probably not the most creative or dynamic of people in a way. I'm, I'm going to get killed for this, but... <laughs> I was going to say, my wife, my wife will be listening to this, and like, yeah. she does know your yeah. address. Um, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll explain everything uh, when you come to Bergen, um, but, but <laughs> if I live that long. But I, I don't know. I, I, even if we get or already have um, forecasting systems and the ability to look kind of look into the future in a way and see that, okay, in six months' time or in eight months' time, we need something. You actually need to budget for that way ahead unless you're going to run into issues when you hit that bump in the road where you need to do stuff. So we have systems that enable us to do that stuff, but it doesn't really uh, provide flexibility on the financial, financial side of things. So you need to kind of uh, tell everyone else that I'm going to need this money at some point and I know probably when and it'll be sometime during next year and that's why I need it now. And it doesn't make sense with... I suppose there's a flip side to this coin because you could just say, well, put it in the cloud and then you can be agile because, you know, it's it's moving to a a flexible consumption-based model. 
Um, and there was a great, uh, quite a nice tweet from Trevor Pott, uh, I noticed, uh, our, our friend from uh, the Register and from, uh, from Canada, eh? Um, about, he wanted to redefine the whole sort of private-public uh, cloud stuff to um, OPEX computing and CAPEX computing. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, which actually kind of, you know, it's quite a nice idea in the concept that, you know, CAPEX is this big, monstrous accounting beast, which is quite hard. You know, you've got, a, again, you've got this problem of CAPEX budgets diminishing, always sort of sticking to the lowest common denominator, and they're very hard to get big numbers approved. Whereas if you can move that big expense across to an operating expense, um, you know, by, by dint of it, in theory, sitting onto a different bit of the balance box sheet, uh, it is in its nature more flexible. Um, that, that's um, kind of what we're, what we're doing anyway, in, in a sense, because uh, I, I, at least I see a lot of organizations try to do this in Norway now, is that they try to move the IT operations uh, and IT guys out from just being uh, expenditure uh, to actually providing uh, a value on their services and charging customers or clients for it. And then you move kind of into the same thing where uh, the cost of running a system uh, that provides some kind of access or some kind of function for 100 people, the cost of running that is divided on those 100 people and they pay for it in a way. So we're, we're kind of trying to, but, but, but with the financial stuff being not as agile, we're, we're kind of moving the uh, who, who, who bears the cost of everything over to everyone else instead of us, while we before had to kind of budget for everything and uh, we were just this giant big black hole in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the financial records where a lot of money got poured into and no one really understood what came out of it again. And back in the day, they would even put, uh, other departments would put crap they didn't want to pay for in IT's yeah. budget. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, in, in your, so, what you're saying, Ed, is people put, put stuff into your budget and then they bought a big ass sand that they put on the shelf. Where were you working? <laughs> no, yeah, because that you suddenly had a big budget you had to spend and, and go and buy yeah, a sand that you just like shelf for three years. Some oh, kind of usage for it. I'm talking about like software products that IT would have nothing to do with that were like yeah. these, these kind of like weird ancient type of stuff with super high licensing costs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. And, and it would just show up in the budget. What What is this? No IT person knows what it is at all. Yeah, we, we a former uh, employer of mine had the opposite problem in a way because end users ended up buying stuff with their credit cards. Uh, and installing it, and that's the whole I, sort of rogue IT thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I never told anyone about it uh, until we had to. Someone had to reinstall their laptop or whatever, and there was some software missing that no one has ever ever heard about before. And there was a huge hidden cost there that the company actually didn't know. So. It's uh, I, I I'm not sure IT and financial uh, stuff really mixes that well in in a, in a sense. It's a difficult thing to deal with, you know. A lot yeah. of us are quite luckily, you know, sort of techies that don't don't have to deal 
so much with the financial side, but it's only when you do peek into this Pandora's box that's got the word budget written on it that you realise that yeah, the, you know, the uh, the truth can be quite painful at times and very strange. Um, and you know, where you previously just had a nice logical system with some components and some software, and it's all kind of working. And then suddenly someone starts to talk about, actually, no, you've had that more than three years, it's so like the maintenance doubles on it. Hang mm. on a second, it's not gone on, but you're going to charge me more just in case it does. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, I think there's a massive nightmare that sort of opens once you get into the, the financial side of IT. Yeah, but at the same time, I think we as professionals, in a way, are moving into actually being able to understand a lot of the business processes that are going on instead of just being the IT guys in the, in the basement with no windows. Yeah, so there's, I think a, there's an evolution actually, here. It, it's critical, yeah. yeah. There, is a, there is an evolution here, but I kind of feel that the evolution is only on the IT side of things and not as much on the financial side, which I admittedly don't know that much about, so I might be wrong. And, uh, uh, but I, I don't see that there is a fundamental change going on there as there might be in IT. Mm. Yeah, so a shift into the way we, we look at that finance and how we, we determine its value to the business. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps we need to get some accountants on the show. And, uh, get them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be yeah. one hell of a boring show. <laughs> I'm sure we. I'm sure we can get get one of our more colourful guests on to uh, to to spice it up and make sure it doesn't get too boring. You never, you never like meet somebody that say like this guy's a rock star of accountants. You know, it's just it's not. It doesn't. Do you seem think very accountants have podcasts? You reckon yeah, they do? Like I don't know, so the XL Lovers podcast or something. I was just about to ask the same thing. Uh, accounting podcasts would be interesting. But but then again, <laughs> we, interesting, we, but also really dull. Yeah, but what do you think everyone else thinks about this one? Honestly, really, it's got to be a tough one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people who listen to VSoup are usually techies. I think. Yep. Uh, if we gave a random episode to some random guy or girl or whatever. Transgender, to be honest. <laughs> uh, how, how do you think that would go? I, I mean, would that make any sense of it at all? I'm not sure they would. That's so it's, true. It's, it's, it's all a matter of perception. You know, it's a, we see things from the IT side and can laugh about accountants having podcasts. But we could give an accountant one of our podcasts and they would think we were mad. Or, or they would just find it boring because... Yeah, uh, you, a, a while ago, uh, Kendrick Coleman posted a video of his grandfather or something reading something from his blog, <laughs> and he could make absolutely no sense of it. I, I, I need to find that video, and we could post it in the uh, in the show notes. But he, he had video; he videoed him reading something, and he didn't understand a word that was written there so but that's, that's the same thing you know it's uh this is what we're interested in so this is interesting to us yes yeah, so i mean everyone's got their technical niche um <laughs> and that technical niche will be completely utterly foreign language to anyone else yeah 
Well, I, I guess if you get into like commodities and like you're a stock trader or something, that's the only part of finance I could see being being interesting. Yeah, you, you just want to wear like the eighties shirts and like wear yeah, some bracelets, like, yeah, and scream at some big thing and you know, like some big uh, <laughs> like flat screen and you know. Not really understand what's happening, anyways. But so, so basically, not that much different from today, then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wearing, wearing bad shirts and screaming at flat screens. <laughs> Sounds like an ideal job to me. Um, and if it involved Dan Aykroyd or, or Eddie Murphy, <laughs> even better. <laughs> oh. Yeah, all this, uh, t- you know, talk of budgets and finance, it's like, okay, so I don't think you need to be an accountant to realize quite how much, like, Google have just spent on a thermostat. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm doing house renovations myself. I realize that these things are expensive, but uh, I, I'd hate to go to their hardware store because, like, $3.2 billion for a thermostat, that's, that's a lot of money. Um, and, you know, it's a clever thermostat. But it's, it seems to have... Um, caused a bit of emotional outrage. I am seeing some massive amounts of nerd rage on Twitter um, <laughs> directed at Google for having the audacity to take one of their products and buy it. Um, yeah, who would have thunk it? You know. Yeah, people, people are getting very hot under the collar. They should probably turn their heating down a bit or something. Yeah. Um, I've even heard it, some people like, oh, Google's trying to run my life with this. It's like, just don't buy one, man. It's expensive anyway. Just use the standard uh, thermostat. Yeah, I, I, you know, I like the concept. I, I must admit, you know, particularly in theory, if you hook it in with a smoke alarm, then you've got sort of the motion sensor, so that only kind of it, it genuinely knows when people are up and about. And if there's no one in the house, then it kind of turns the temperature down. So in theory, yes, it could probably pay for itself. Um, particularly if, you know, yes, if you had a very, very regular routine and everyone was left the house by 10 and was out of the house between 10 and 4 every day, then a regular thermostat would be fine. But, you know, I kind of like the idea of occupancy-based stuff and the, because it knows what the temperature in your region is, it um, in order to get your house to a particular temperature from cold, if it's very cold outside, it's going to need to work a little bit harder and sort of the the balancing um, an intelligent thermostat, yeah, not necessarily a bad idea. Um, and it seems very well designed, you know, it's designed by that, that chap that sort of decided that to put a, a round thing on a square thing and call it an iPod. Um, and so, yeah, aesthetically, it's quite pleasing. Um, yeah, so it, it seems like a genuine, genuinely good product, to be honest. And but people, yeah. a lot of people don't talk about. They have like there's a second Nest product, this smoke and carbon monoxide detector. Yeah, because yeah, apparently that kind of hooks in with a thermostat to act as an extra motion sensor. As well, it does. It's quite a connected system. Um, it's a lot of money if you if you think of it as just a pure smoke alarm. Yeah, you're paying a hundred dollars for a smoke alarm, which is about ninety five dollars more than your average smoke alarm costs. I would imagine. Um, and for a smoke alarm that tells you that there's a fire. Um, which is great. Normally, you'd see smoke. Um, <laughs> it's a nice I, idea, you know. There's. I have a, a kind of intelligent alarm system in my home that I can tweak and, and turn on and off with my my iPhone and whatever, um, and records everything. And that's kind of the kind of the same thing. I don't I don't have the uh, possibility to turn on and off stuff, but I can I, I can buy and buy some extra modules for it and 
hook it up to my uh, uh, sockets, and then I can I, I can time and and program those as I want to want to uh, from my phone. Uh, but it doesn't have the thermostat thing in it. But I I mean. Uh, is this going to be a, a, a new advertising platform for Google? Is that what people are worried about, or are they worried about? I don't think. It, I think. Yeah, I think people are getting their knickers in a twist unnecessarily about this particular bit. I suspect it's part of a wider. You know, the actual product itself. Is, you know, Google are probably going to sell it quite happily and make and make some money doing it. You know, um, it's more about the people from Nest and the fact that Nest have got this back end system for home automation. And if Google are trying to then move into general home automation, that there's a, a you know, they're they're quite good at not reinventing the wheel. Yeah. So it seems that they could repurpose part of the Nest backend infrastructure to be a more general sort of you know home automation type thing. Yeah, I was kind of seeing a few comments of, from people that oh, now Google is going to know when you're home and what rooms you're in and when you're out and whatever. Google um, already knows when I'm home. Exactly. Let's face it. In, Go- in Google now, you put in your home address. Exactly. Google has location awareness in your phone. It already knows where you are. Yeah, it's like no, Google knows more about my calendar than I do. And sometimes yeah. it'll suggest me, hey, do you care about uh, directions to this place? If I've been to a place two or three times. Mm-hmm. Even, uh, yeah, it'll start giving you travel information. Then. Yeah. Or if you've overslept, it wakes up and tells you you're going to be late for your appointment because it takes you an hour to get there. So unless you invent a teleporter, good luck. Um <laughs> My, my iPhone does the same thing. It tells me that right now it would take you 25 minutes to drive home. I yeah. haven't even thought about driving home, but it tells me that it would. Uh, it's the same thing. It, they know where we are. So, if, you're, if your problem is Google knowing where you are and when, turn off your smartphone as well, because that's what really tells, you, tells people what, what's going on. It, it, exactly, you know, the, the privacy is already kind of lost on that. Um, and, you know, people will trade privacy for useful information. You know, take, um, I was using to, to navigate, uh, to, to drive to the uh, location I've not been to before today. And uh, to get there, I used Waze. Now, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Waze. I think it's uh, it's a pretty good, for, for free sat-nav. But obviously, if it's free then you've got to work, you're clearly going to be the product. So why is it being free? Well, you provide, you're acting as a traffic sensor for everyone else that uses it. And Google use that, that traffic information for their other products. And you can buy Google traffic information um, as one of their you know, the services that they can offer. Um, and you know, well, I'm, I'm happy to be part of that uh, because it gets me where I need to get to, sometimes via some fairly scenic routes. Um, but you know, I get there in the end. Um, it, it never seems to take me the same way twice, uh, but it reckons it's the fastest way, um, which is, is interesting when you live in a, uh, a grid system uh, because yeah, <laughs> you never you never go the same way twice. So you know, it's obviously ways built in uh, to prevent uh, any uh, terrorism measures. Uh, it's clearly to make sure it's, that I don't have any patterns. It's basically a distributed uh, delivery system for roads. It load yeah. balances for you. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I'm going down the, you know, it's not necessarily the open shortest path, path first, but it should be the open quickest path. Yeah. Round robin. 
that's when you just like keep on going round and round and round about <laughs> and just pick a random exit. Uh, that's a roundabout, Robin. It's uh, fairly different. <laughs> but, but the thing is, we're going to connect more and more stuff. Yeah, it, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Same thing. Uh, it's going to be owned by someone. Exactly. It, it's not that long ago that LG TVs actually sent um, statistics and file names of the files you were watching from a USB stick if you stuck it into your TV to their central servers. Yeah, which is quite naughty. Could be interesting to see, I guess. But, but the thing is, we are, by using this stuff, basically telling everyone that, okay, we'll, we, we are fine with doing that. And I'm not sure that, okay, Google is big. Google is huge. They have a lot of data on us already. And I can see that buying Nest and having more uh, information that way it might for someone, be, uh, some people, be uh, too much. But then again, is it too much? Isn't it too much if Nest had that data already? Uh, they did. And. <laughs> At some point, you just got to figure out, do you want to be a part of this or not? And that's it. Um, don't use it if you don't want to provide that information to whoever owns it at any given time. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually happy, happy to do that. If it can, I think home automation is really cool, make your life easier. I mean, yeah, people are. I have a way to get information about you, no matter what, either opt in or opt out. Yeah, but doesn't doesn't necessarily necessarily mean that all data that is collected is okay to collect? Um, because there are there there are uh, like the LG case. There are things that definitely are being logged that you didn't. Anticipate would be logged, but it, it it people need to have a to actually have a, a realistic view on these things. Uh, if you buy something connected to the internet and provide that provides some sort of value to you auto, automa automatically when you do something, someone needs to get the data to do that for you, and you have to be able be willing to actually give them that data for it to provide you with a service. And if you're not okay with that, well, don't use it. Uh, I, 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 the, uh, if this, then that service on um, as well recently added a, a location filter as well. So you can basically have it text your wife if you're leaving the office and say, I'm on my way home automatically. Yep. Uh, that's the same, same kind of thing. If you connect stuff to that, and you can automate it by, okay, when I get home, turn my programmable light bulbs blue, then it will. That's true. I must have, have you ever seen, have you seen these light bulbs with an API? I almost bought one. Mm -hmm. uh, I've just changed, I've changed like pretty much 90% of the bulbs in my house over to LED now. Um, I've been really happy with it. Uh, but I did get a couple of these multicolored ones, and whilst they, they don't have an API, and they've got a remote control. It is quite cool to be able to just put the room into disco mode. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just go, you know what, I've had enough of this today. Engage disco mode. That'll go <laughs> nicely with a couple of your shirts, Chris. 
Exactly. Every room needs disco mat. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're going to continue connecting stuff to the internet. We're going to continue providing people or services with information. And that's just how it is. It's convenience. And we, we, the collective we as humans are going to continue doing, doing that. While Absolutely. we, uh, while we at the same time bitch at the NSA b- because they're collecting data on us. So it's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it, there are, there are both, both sides to this are right in a way. And people need to take a stance on their own. Yeah. And ultimately make their mind up if they, if, yeah convenience for them is worth it then you know you sometimes you, you've got to you've got to take the uh, the squeeze with the juice as I believe the term says um, speaking speaking of I don't know to squeeze and things that are a little bit difficult um, that's, a, that's one of my best transitions yet I should, I should <laughs> put these into a book um, that I, I noticed that there's sort of talk about uh, VCDX design document templates Mm-hmm. And that there's talk of sample designs being being published, mm-hmm. um, and again, seems to cause some mixed reactions. Uh, on on the plus side, I think it will be very. There's a lot of people who um, got to the pre pre-design stages of ECDX and then realised that. Actually, doing the design because they don't do designs every single day. Uh, they might have just done you know, one one design um, for for their company they work for because they're not necessarily a consultant or a reseller or work for VMware. Um, because they're not immersed in that world day in day out, that they really really struggled. Um, yeah, and I think that has partially contributed to the, to the relatively low numbers of ECDX and VMs where it's realised this and that. They know that exclusive and fantastic the the cert is, is it, you know they want to get more BCDXs. Um, you can't just have say we're only ever going to have a hundred of them because I think that would be potentially unrealistic. Um, yeah, I guess no so customers as of yet. There, there are very few. I think. Uh, I um, it, it's extremely small. Um, but you know, there was a point where they all got snapped up by vendors or VMware themselves. Um, I, I suspect that pro- that practice is still still generally happening. So I can see they want to make the VCDX easier to get, um, but I can also see current VCDXs uh, struggling a bit. But then again, I think about other exams. So you know, I've sat beta exams before where there's definitely been no revision guides available. You've been given a blueprint, and that is it. Um, whereas nowadays, if you're going to do a VCAP, think how many resources there are that are not based on the exams, but based on a lot, a, a good number of people having done it and sharing some of their, their knowledge and skills. So the, the really great stuff done by the uh, the brown bags. Um, there's some fantastic vision guides based around this is what exactly you need to do. Um, and it, you know, it makes that certification, and it's a tough certification that lots of people can still fail. But it makes it gives people a lot more confidence to take it. So, I, I for one would like to see a sample of VCDX. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Submission. I don't know what it's supposed to look like. No, exactly, and that's kind of 
I'm I'm pretty sure that a lot of the VCDXs out there have before they submitted their own design had had a look at other people's submissions before. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that people talk. I mean, people talk to, to each other in this community anyway. And if I knew someone I knew well enough to ha have done the VCDX, I would certainly ask if it was possible for me to have a look at the final submission, but just to, not to copy it or anything, but just to have a look at it, get a general feel. the structure and the flow of the, the document pack. Yeah, so, exactly. How, how much is, how, how big is this thing supposed to be? How funny enough, though, on the plural, you know, plural site uh, that we all get with our V-Expert. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. If you watch Scott Lowe's design uh, training, yep. he actually shows his uh, design that he submitted all blacked out, of course. Mm -hmm. But you got to get the structure of what it looks like. There. Yeah. No, that's not so that's and I'm, I'm not saying that they should publish um designs that have been submitted and successfully defended. But if they could provide a sample document uh kind of explaining this is what we're looking for in a design document. I'm yeah. The main thing they're always directing you to is the cloud infrastructure architecture case study. Yeah. You know, uh, and if you make something look exactly like that, you know, you're almost not going to pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it would be pretty easy for them to, to actually verify that uh, you're, you're defending uh, a design. Uh, having looked at a sample uh, and copying it would make you fail that examine it exam anyway because you wouldn't know uh during your defense what to answer on a lot of these yeah, you, you'd get to the defense but you would absolutely fall on your ass yeah well, uh, you'd make a complete ass of yourself while doing it <laughs> yeah it, it would be like i don't know if um someone uh, just copy and pasting my cv and uh putting their name on it and coming to an interview for a, a vmi job if they were an oracle specialist yeah, um, immediately apparent that actually they don't quite. What's on paper does not tally up with the person sat in front of you. Well, it depends uh, on who's interviewing them. Yeah, well, in the VCDX case, it's existing VCDXs. So, yeah, which yeah, you got no chance there. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you know, you've got a tough, uh, a tough crowd of people to try and please. Um, yeah. And having done something a little bit like it recently, so I've I've been having to. Do some interviews to to actually backfill my my old job, um, and as part of the interview, I decided to do sort of a, a little case study type question. Um, so draw, you know, drawing from some experiences around sort of the VCDX thing. So I gave uh, they got like pre scene information uh, twenty four hours beforehand of this is a customer. Um, you know, the scenario was they'd had an initial sales call and they'd had. Um, like a junior uh, SE had done a, a demo, so they'd seen some products and they'd got some notes, and these were the notes that they had. Um, and then the the candidate had to basically prepare into prepare a, a little presentation based on the information that they were given, but also with the ability to change that presentation if the customer happened to say, "Well, actually, that information is wrong," and, you know, just to sort of see how people could think on their feet. Um, I actually thought it, it was quite difficult to um, 
to adjudicate that sort of thing because you know where I could see someone was going a little bit wrong, and I really wanted to say, no, why don't you ask this question? You had to kind of stay, stay in character of the uh, the IT director of the the client company and refuse to give any information unless it was specifically asked for. Um, so yeah, it was. I thought it was quite quite beneficial um, for for me as well, just to sort of you know learn how to interview people, which I'd never done before. Um, so it's quite a challenge. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, it's. Uh, I, I don't think uh, publishing a sample submission would hurt the VCDX program at all. I, I, I think that would only benefit it, to be honest. Uh, but I, I can understand those who have blindly put this together and submitted it, defended it, and got it approved and everything, and, and, and got the certification. Uh, that's yeah, but hey, things evolve. That's how it works. Well, guys, uh, thanks a lot for listening to VSoup41. As usual, you can catch us on Stitcher, iTunes, or vsoup.net.